Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, when I'm like working with people, I'll often break out my Boston accent just to like totally mess with their perception of everything because they like think they're bringing in this like super high end guy. Da, 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 da. And then I'll just be like, hey, you guys, are you going out for beers after we meet up here today? Because, you know, we're doing some spiritual things. And we're going to have some emotional conversations that could tend to really rock you. And I think it's important that you have like a way to process it with your community afterwards. So if you want to go get like a couple Budweiser's and like throw some dots maybe after, I could go with you even. Although, you know, that's not always normal, but I could do that for you guys. <laughs> and it's like... You know, they laugh and they're like, oh, okay, we just have no idea what's happening here. Which is what I'm trying to do. I want to get them off balance yeah. enough so they can open up. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to learn who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This is episode number 84, Thomas Droge and Brenda Kahn. Story history, and self-perception. If you want to know someone, have a conversation with them. But if you want to know who they really are, have a conversation with their partner. Thomas Droge and Brenda Kahn share their story and how they've changed over the years. They explore the idea of our internal narratives and self-perceptions, finding your own way, and the human experience of time. Brenda and Thomas discuss ways to change the world and the importance of investigating your history. Thomas Droge is a healer, teacher, and author, a lifelong student of Tai Chi and Qigong and embodied movement. His study of consciousness awakening practices and Taoism have shaped his path and philosophy. Thomas's life work is to share these transformative teachings and practices with others to help them walk their unique path. Brenda Kahn is a musician, writer, teacher, and mother. She is a former Columbia Records recording artist with seven albums and two decades touring Europe and North America, sharing stages with Bob Dylan, Chrissy Hind, and Jeff Buckley. She is the author of the irreverent poetry book about motherhood, Ode to Chores, The Good, the Bad, and the Laundry. Brenda is currently raising her two boys, teaching high school history, and working on a memoir of her time in the music industry. So I don't normally talk about the episode numbers, like what's the number of this episode that I'm currently recording, because sometimes we move them. But in general, I'm going to say we just released before this episode 83. <laughs> and Thomas was actually the guest for episode three, wow. which would have been three or four years ago. How many years ago was that? Twenty. Many. Yeah. Some number of years ago. I feel like I have noticeably more gray hairs. You look exactly as young as you did the last time I saw you. So 56 years young. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple reasons. And then, of course, Brenda is also here. So we, the three of us, have known each other maybe five or six years or seven or eight years, depending on... Because we would have first met. At Aikido. At, at the Aikido school. Right. Before Concord. Right, right. <laughs> right. Brenda's like, oh my God, right, it's true. And the boys were like... Ten. Little. Half as tall. Ten and half the size they are now. Yeah. yeah. Seven or something seven. like that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not good they, at it. I just remember them being so little that they had to sit and meditate and it was <laughs> like so cute. Dylan couldn't do it. He was like, ah! <laughs> yeah. He was all over the place. <laughs> 
So I wanted to talk to Thomas again because I think your interest, your work, your research, your project, however we want to put that, into pathfinding and looking at people's journeys. I'm like, oh, I kind of feel like I'm stomping through the woods. And every time I look over to the right, oh, you're stomping through the woods on a parallel path. Like, hey, how you doing? We should like, you know, sit down and record a podcast at some point. But also you have the experience um, in radio going back, but you've done some radio shows and now you've been doing some recorded videos. So there's a lot of um, common interests there. And I don't know about you, but for me, I think we've always hit it off and had fun. I've always we enjoyed have. coming into the city. I kind of shed a little tear when you closed Ugh. the Manhattan studio, but so did I. Things change. Like I'm, I'm actually getting better at that whole like, you know, there will be a last episode that we get to record. You know, like that's going right. to happen. Uh, maybe that's just part of growing up. Um, but anyway, I wanted to like let's let's bring Brenda into the conversation. We're just like automatically talking <laughs> and your interest and the work that you've done I, I haven't listened but the things that you've done with music piques my interest from like the gearhead I'm a muse I love I'm an audiophile and I don't know so I, I'm mm-hmm. like I think there's going to be a neat mix here of tech and passion and journey cool. so I have a bunch of questions we can start with but I think a fun one to start would be did you guys meet was like movement and training a part of it in the way that you met? In some ways. I mean, that's not the way we met. We were we were word movers when we met. Mm-hmm. She was a singer and I was a poet. Oh. And we would hang out in places where people danced and sang and did poetry. So I think we met at the El Cafe originally. Yeah, we met in a coffee shop. That's and her stuff. dog introduced us. That's right. Her dog, not, not that not one. This not this dog. No. no, Barley. But, Tika. Barley, sorry. Um, Tika. Tika was our... Tika jumped up on the bar of the counter where I was the coffee jock in the back. Oh. I was like, oh, nice dog. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he sight. likes dogs. That That's a, so cute. And then I, I used my deadly pickup line of that time, which is, I've just entered into the priesthood and I'm celibate. Oh my god! <laughs> it's true, though. You, when did you become a <laughs> That lasted very short amount of time. <clears throat> I was swearing off women at the time and needed a break from relationships because I'd come out of one. But then we were both kind of in a not interested in relationships kind of vibe, actually, when we met. Yeah. So, and we were sort of actually, it was really funny when. We met because we were both almost like the same, you know, we were kind of like, oh, yeah, this person, like, they're not going to get me and they're not going to, like, understand my... Turns out you're actually kindred my spirits. My intellect is so great. I, don't think, I didn't say that. That wasn't me. That's her. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I had much simpler tests, like, I would call her at three o'clock in the morning to see if she was awake, because if she wasn't awake at three o'clock in the morning, I couldn't possibly date her, because... Because if you're I awake at sleep, I never thought of that. <laughs> That's brilliant. And she picked up the phone, like, "Oh yeah, hey Thomas, Hello. hey, up? hey Thomas. Oh, you're already in. You're already in the. Ro- She's in like the, playing I guitar. Said, I almost said Rolodex. You're already in the phone and caller ID, so she knew it was you. Except no, it's all I just recognized phones. this voice. Yes, that's right. You guys are my generation. Sorry. See, you look so young. I'm like, oh, look at we these do. young kids. <laughs> yeah, we're 94. We met. Mm-hmm. No, 93. 93. You were red. Four. <laughs> You're not going to take it? Oh, I w- you wore blue. 
Yeah. Ah, yes, I remember it well. <laughs> Nobody's going to get that. Which is Nobody's like, going to get Good. That. Go look it up, people. It's a reference to a song. Yeah, so my, I get this look. looks like this. And it, it's not even crashing. It's just, it's my brain. I always say, I feel like I'm walking down a street in like a big city and we're having a conversation and we're just walking past side streets and people who listen, not that anybody listens, people who listen, I've said this a million times. It's like, oh, there's so many places to go. That, that look right. is me going. <laughs> like, I wish you should do like a photo of that look so that you can put it up with the podcast so people can know <laughs> what like, you're talking about. <laughs> This is Craig's look. Because uh, it really looks, it looks disturbing. When you see it, you're like, what, what's wrong with him? Is he having an aneurysm? What's going on? <laughs> but I think that's true about our relationship because we've been together for so long and we've lived so many different kinds of parts of our lives together that it is hard to know, like, which direction. We could talk about mm. almost anything, <laughs> I think, at this point. But, you know, I, I had a memory since you were talking about music. It, the first time that I came across, but the first time that I ever really saw um, Tai Chi was at, I had this big loft space in Brooklyn, <laughs> and Thomas, we were just dating. I don't know, we're, I didn't know you that well. No. But he came over and was talking about Tai Chi, and I was like, what is the Tai Chi? You know, like, I mean, I think I'd probably seen it on TV or well, something. Well, in 93, you certainly didn't Google Not it. Not a lot no, of it. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. And so he showed me, like, the Tai Chi form he was working on. I thought, oh, this dude is... What have I gotten myself into? Funkito loco. <laughs> but it was cool because then yep. he brought me to his Tai Chi class and I was all dark musician like dark bars like not, you know I didn't exercise or anything like that <laughs> that wasn't popular in the 90s but it changed my <laughs> life in a lot of ways in a lot of ways so you're saying Tai Chi or you're saying Thomas I mean I'm assuming Both. Thomas changed your life but no Tai Chi but mm. I, him do you too. remember what it was like in here? I was, we were talking about this before. Like, how does it work? And Craig's podcasting. Here's how it works. Do you remember what it was like to make the transition from, I'm going to say, the dark musician persona to like, I don't want to say discover because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what was it like to make the transition to the, the sunny side of the street? Yeah. I mean, was it the sunny side? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I definitely do remember this shift because I was coming out of sort of a very dynamic up and down part of my life. And Tai Chi in so many ways was, and Thomas's whole path was a completely different direction. So the idea of Tai Chi was so fascinating to me, this idea of like maintaining your center as you move through space. I was so uncentered that to me that was mm. like, whoa, that's a thing? Like you can – and I was getting stronger. Like I got a lot stronger. The Tai Chi class we did, well, then it was like Xing Yi and we Plus were... somehow I always found teachers who were like – Hardcore. <laughs> hardcore and direct line lineages. But more than that, yeah. they loved to have my wife around as a student and to then like – constantly mess with me and be nice to her. Mm. 
in a joking way, but they loved it. So they liked the duo of us quite a bit. Mm. And then they'd like push me to the edge and then they'd tell her like it was perfect. Ah, that's kind of true. <laughs> Even my medicine apprenticeship, because she studied Xingyi with the... Yeah, I got grandfathered into like yeah, these... With our with my Xingyi teacher who was part of the bone medicine and the herbal medicine that I did. And, you know, he would torture me. And then he'd ask like a medicine question when we were hanging out with Brenda and she'd say something and he'd be like, how does she know that? And you don't know that. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, she could do no wrong. Or he showed me how to his, do flying needle technique and stuff right. like that. I wasn't in Chinese medicine school or anything. And I tended to find those kind of teachers back then. They were like, I was still a, I mean, when you met me, I was still a fighter. Right. I looked for teachers who could fight. Hmm. Where was this? Uh, In New York at that point. I mean, I was in Boulder first training from my first like seven years out there and then came to New York. And I have to say to the sunny side of the street question, like, Martial arts teachers in New York also are wearing all black and are pretty kind of dark people in a lot of ways or working through their own stories. So it isn't like that, you know, monastic environment or like... Beams of sunshine. Yeah, I feel like that came later for everyone who entered into that process. Like we all entered in through the dark. And then at some point if we call like self-acceptance the sort of light you're talking about, like that was the thing that we did eventually arrive at. And my teachers were all pretty young. So they're around my age. They weren't like way older than me. And so I've watched them evolve also. And they've all kind of gone through the same sort of journey in different ways. But I think the material, if you stay with it, forces you to come to terms with all these things that you're resisting and, and, identifying as somehow not you or against you or for you and at some point all that's left is you and then you get that choice to say okay I'm gonna be me now and that's that sunny side of the street Mm. yeah I think it's a really right I think it's just a really long long process that's for us anyway yeah it took us forever (laughs) every every two feet there's a side street where I could go oh well Tracy and I I'm leaving all those I'm skipping all those let's talk about you guys but do you think that there are shortcuts to that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Where the, so where the long... So if you're thinking you took the circuitous, route. right? Circuitous route. path. Would it have been better if you'd taken the shortcuts? Like, what's an example of a shortcut you should have taken? I mean, you're doing the thing I do right now with people where I say, like, oh... <laughs> which finger Sorry. would you like to cut off? <laughs> like, which part of yourself do you not want to have? Oh, oh, right, right. In order to make it faster, because you have to give up everything that you learned along that way. So for me, I don't think I would change anything, but it's interesting to see the, the challenges that were created early on in my life before I had mm. executional power over what was happening to me in my developmental years generated, you know, like karma expands, right? That's one of the laws of karma. So if your brain develops certain kinds of neurological patterns based on the experiences that you have that then creates a worldview, then you populate the worldview with your challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So the challenges that I ended up populating my worldview with, 
Yeah, I'd switch some of those around. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, I think we both had a lot of that, like a lot of sort of breaking down of of what we had learned to do. And I, could we have done it faster? I, I don't know. We had, I think, I think <laughs> mentors, like if there's, any, if there's anything, I think mentors would, are the things that, that kind of push you forward faster. Oh, I love, I love that topic. Sorry. Of, yeah. of mentors. I, my personal two cents, I don't have children. My personal two cents is mentorship is one of the things that's missing in America. Well, yeah. I'm not going to try to solve all the world's problems, but one of the things that we're missing here is the people, oh, was it Seneca who said if old men don't teach, young men can't know or something? There's a, like, there's yeah, a, yeah. a mm-hmm. 2,000 year old, and it's got to have been longer than that since like Lao Tzu must have said it too, about you have, one has a responsibility to not just live life, but then to also play the, the mm. others, the, I don't want to say like yin and yang, but there's, the, there's a, two parts to that role. And you, I don't think it's fair to blame kids these days or millennials or people or my generation. You can't blame people if there was no other role present. Like, right. oh, you did a good job right. considering half the piece was missing. Right. So when you mentioned mentorship, that's where my brain just went. And I'm wondering, are there any mentor, like, any mentors that leap out when I say mentors? I mean, I have a, so this is a, a straight-up list. Right, and this is a really classic thing for men and women. Like, women tend to not have mentors. and In our culture. In our culture. I was going to say, wait, in our culture? Okay, because like, why not would be the thing that I would want to say. But, but you mean in our culture. Right, it's like hard to find them, and women aren't taught to mentor their younger Yeah. People and they're often it is starting to shift, but women are also often not in a leadership role. So then, like they don't sort of take on the next Mm. woman in their job or whatever. So it's yeah, it's just been a lot on my mind lately too. Like I feel like if I had had those people along the way, I may have gotten where I wanted to go faster. But and there were people. It's not like I didn't have any, but I definitely. It wasn't something I was looking for. I. So what do you do if you, I always laugh, like what do you do if you're listening to this podcast? Oh, hi mom. What do you do if you're listening to the podcast and you decide <laughs> that you want to like, oh, I, I think I should find a mentor. Or like, how do you do that? Because I actually at this, I'm going on 49. I have no idea how to go find a mentor if I wanted to find one. They tend to fall in, fall in your lap, but. I mean, it depends what you want to do. And I think getting into whatever it is you want to do and then reaching out and saying, hey, I'm really looking. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking, you know, looking. for help in this world. Can I help you? Can I learn from you? Like, you know, I think, I think it's a probably, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting in the virtual world that we're in now because yeah. the number of mentors available online is quite quite a bit more than ever but was is it, before is it the same like see i think then the, if you're not in person yeah i think virtual doesn't even come close i would argue that i can't learn qigong from you via video if i had access to you and i had a little bit yeah. of granite but i i'm just like i'm sorry you can't do the energy work through the computer post recorded but i'm not i'm not criticizing the work you're doing because no, no, no. awesome. i'm just saying like oh but but like, if you I don't think anyone can learn from the recordings. If they've been in the live class with me in that moment, there seems to be a certain level of transmission. But so I have a discussion group once a week 
That's mm. like our song got to sort of talk about things. So in that class or that conversation, you know, our little Pathfinder Sangha, we're talking about this form we're doing and we're moving through the five phases and they're like, oh, fi the fire phase, I could completely feel it. I totally got it. And then we went into the water phase and we do this thing where we like suck in the whole front of the body and round the back and it stretches open the entire yang section of the body in a way that we don't normally think of to do. And they're like, I really couldn't feel that. And... And I was like, oh, yeah. Because in that practice, when you do that, what happens is the energy rises up through the center really fast and comes out, and it comes out through the arms. But when I teach that in real life, I just show them the martial application. And if you're not hooked up, it doesn't work. And if you are hooked up, it's effortless. And you can figure out by mm. making contact with another human being where you're disconnected. And so that whole piece of the reality of the practice that we always had in contact with each other is that's gone at the moment and that seems like something you can't do virtually at all but i'm surprised how much work i've done virtually that's been you know like maybe i've had to squish it into the section to make mm -hmm. it fit right like it doesn't quite deliver but uh, I'm surprised at how much connection you are able to get. Yeah, like even meditating with groups of people online and practicing. Like there's a moment in class where everybody kind of drops in, you know, that feeling and you're like everyone's in sync. That happens when we're online. Hmm. But think about even in the old days, like if you're on the phone with somebody and you're sort of in a moment and you're kind of having a late night conversation, you know, there's a lot of transition that I mean transmission that happens that happens yeah and that I bet we're building neurological material in our visual quadrants in ways that we never have before right now in order to like build much greater imaginative worlds to fill in the 2D screen we're looking at Ooh, that's a good point about having to bring your imagination to bear yeah it is amazing how much you can pick up if you've been like in 400 Zoom calls. You, yeah. You know, and like Zoom has now become a thing. It's like, just make me a Xerox, right? right. <laughs> Xerox was a brand name. But anyway, Zoom has now become a verb and a noun and a yeah. Yeah. whole thing. But I, you can totally tell whether people are distracted or focused. And not even, I mean, like glasses are a dead giveaway for reflections, but just you can tell whether. Yeah. Um, I've told in many of these episodes of the podcast, I've told stories about eye contact and like, for obvious reasons, humans are really good at detecting eye contact. I've always wondered, like, what, like, what is it that you can actually see? Because I'm like, at beyond 15 feet, you really can't see pupils mm -hmm. anymore. But but your brain can tell. Yeah, that, that, what, you're looking at me. That's weird. Or, or, yeah. Why did that yeah. thing just change from head on to 45 degrees to narrow its target field? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> why does it have one leg back and one leg forward? What's going on? <laughs> What's going on there? Hey, why did my legs just move too? <laughs> yeah, we had a bear in our yard a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah. I, I wasn't there, but Bren was there. and The dog went running after it. It was crazy. And then I, the, you know, my thought was, no, run the, the other, other way. way. Like, the dog, yes. The dog's like, I can take that. <laughs> Until the dog realized what she'd come up against. And then she was like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, let me rethink that. You make the first move. I'm not going to do it. Well, she the totally, bear just, the bear <laughs> it was did a total just, standoff. It did, it did just like, 
it sort of got up for a sec and then it just went down and left and was just like, ah, oh, this is way more trouble than it's worth. I'm looking for trash, <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm, looking, I'm for not looking for Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> just a just garbage to knock over. I'm not yeah. the neighbors trying Jeepers. to rumble with the dog. He wasn't super hungry. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> not highly motivated. Yeah, yeah, one took the neighbors a chicken from the neighbor's mm, yard. Yeah. And they get hungry. Yeah. They are they are opportunists. Opportunist. On the road, right here. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Just grabbed it. I once lost a, a, a trio of hikers on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> I haven't told this story before. I was I used to volunteer for the Appalachian Mountain Club, Appalachian Mountain Council, AMC, leading astronomy weekends, teaching astronomy. Cool. We were in uh, northern New Jersey at a what used to be a Boy Scout camp. And I led a hike out on the rocks during the day. And when I came back, I didn't have an assistant to follow the group. And the people on the back just dropped three people off the back of like 20 some people oh that I had. God. So oh I had, I, you know, at the end, I, I'm like, you know, they're coming in one, two, three, 22, 24, 25. I had 28. Oh <laughs> my God. Missing three people. And now if you turn right, you can go to Maine. <laughs> if you turn oh left, no. that's what we did. So fortunately, these are all people from the city and sneakers. So I was able to basically trail run back to the T. And they had, in fact, turned the wrong way on the Appalachian Trail and they were heading for Maine. So in my in my <laughs> trucking through the woods, this is related to a bear. I'm like running through the woods as fast as I can, looking at the rocks, and I hear this rustling on a converging shuffle course, and a black bear and I are going the same basic direction. And I eventually stop. Bear comes lumbering out of the bushes, 15 feet in front of me. It's just a, just the black bear, not not a huge deal. They're not really aggressive, and like looks at me, and I'm like, oh, Reggie, you know, yeah. and like and the bear looked at me like, yeah, that's too much trouble, and like went in the bushes, and then I'm like. Was, I don't know if this is good or bad because now I can't see it again. Right. So then, I, and he's kind of going the way I'm going. So I run down the trail and I go like another 50 yards and I find three really pissed off New Yorkers who were there for a nice weekend who are now they're hot and grumpy. And we, you know, at least they had sat down. And I'm like, okay. And then my next thought is, do I tell them about the bear? Right. And I decided, nope. No. <laughs> I did not mention the bear. You know, I'm just, just like, it just go back on my way. So I have seen a few bears. That was too close. Well, Thomas's last um, retreat that he did, me and one of the other people who are participants, participants <laughs> uh, retreaters. One of the, <laughs> well, he had just written this whole thing about a whole blog post about being lost in the woods and and how you can't really ever really pathfind until you're truly lost, lost. in the woods. And and then we all did this hike up to this beautiful waterfall no. that where everyone was going to meditate and you know listen to flute and and this other woman and I totally did exactly that and got completely lost in the woods and we had we all we had was our our cell phones got no service but it, it could still tell us where we were right yeah so we were kind of like. Mm, I feel like these dots like could lead us. Oh my god, we were so lost, and finally we got through to Thomas, and he came and and found. <laughs> Just for anybody who's listening, if you get lost in the wilderness, you're supposed to sit down. <laughs> Stop hiking unless you're in imminent danger. Right. Stop. Like, really? some, yes, that's the first thing you're supposed to do is don't I just. I wish I knew that because we got really tired. I'm, like, I'm going to say it in the podcast. The first rule of being lost in the wilderness, if you're not in imminent danger, is stop walking <laughs> because you may actually be able to figure out where you are. And the people who are with you are going to go, oh my God, where'd they go? And you are currently not very far from where you were right. a moment ago. Right. So right. Just wait there. Yes. 
That is so good. Now, if you're good advice. if you're bit by a snake, or you know, there, there are reasons when mm. well, we need to make a decision. But generally, kids, if you're listening, just stop <laughs> and wait, and don't run from bears. Oh yeah, no, that, that oh. I love that game. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, or bring a slow friend. Yeah, I was going to tell the joke about the two hikers, and that I was <laughs> bring oh a slow God. friend. <laughs> I I always say I don't know who would ever listen, but people probably do. And before we start recording, we have a little discussion about like, well, what do you want to talk about, Craig? And the answer is, I like many five six years ago started having cool conversations. And it all originally began related to me studying parkour. And then I realized we were actually studying art de placement. And I just enjoyed the conversation so much that this kind of became an excuse for me. You know, like, I, I'm going to just call you guys up randomly. Like, you know, I haven't seen you guys like in, well, you, three years, two years, you know. Brandon, Somewhere I haven't seen you in seven or eight years. Do you guys mind if I come over on a Sunday? I'm going to bring, like, just for two hours. I just want to come over and talk to you. And, and you're like, we'll just say. Like, I think more people should do that, but podcasting is just an excuse for me to just totally. carry microphones around. Um, but there's also something about the headspace being in mics. I describe that a lot for people who listen to a lot of episodes, but there's something about being literally in each other's ears. Yeah, um, I like that. So we've gone a couple different places. I could talk more. Mentorship is something I'm interested in, but I kind of feel like there's an opportunity here to talk about finding your path. I'm not trying to like make a word play, but sure. there's something about that that I think you and I touched on 80 episodes ago, <laughs> but also there's a chance, a chance to have Brenda with us in the conversation. So we could probably put both of those. I could see ways to put both of those things into the conversation. I feel like I have to say one more thing about mentors. Go, go, man, go. Because, uh, I was at a, so I work a lot with leadership teams and bring all these tools to them now and show them how to connect and communicate. And there's this one group I work with where the CEO of the fund tends to like just throw me into situations and he he likes to throw everybody into situations and he kind of sees their potential and what they could do and then he likes to just see what happens. And so he called me up and he was like, hey, um, we hired a new CEO of the fund. He's going to be in New York. And he's going to meet with all the um, engineering team and sales team, and none of those guys know them know him. And I'm wondering if you could be at that meeting and get them all to like be really connected. And I was like, sure, I'll I'll meet you there. And he's like, great. And then 20 minutes before the meeting, he calls me and he says, "Hey, man, I'm not going to make it to the meeting. <laughs> the CEO will be there. The whole team will be there. Play on, rip it up." And so I get there, and of course, like. There's no movement space or anything like that. So we have to sit around a conference table and a WeWork, basically. And I sit down with these guys, and it all worked out great, and it was amazing. But the guy, his name's Jack Swift, who's he's an interesting guy because he's an ex-Army Ranger turned businessman and, and has a lot of those, like, converted Ranger lessons. You know, like, officers always, officers always eat last. And, right. Like, his greatest compliment is probably... What is it? R A L W. Rangers always lead the way. Mm. But we're sitting down and we're going through discussions about who we are and we're all ice breaking. And mentorship came up and he said something that I'd never heard anyone say before that was just, it literally 180'd my brain on mentorship. And I had been talking about the value of mentors and what a mentor he could be for this team because he's older than them. And And he said, you know, for me, 
one of the things that I think people always miss in mentorship is that you need mentors who are younger than you to share with you what's changing in the world and keep you connected to what's happening. And mentorship's really a two-way street of the younger generation kind of connecting you with the world and what's happening and showing you what's changing from their point of view to like teach you so that you don't get stuck in your static view of the world. And the second he said it, I was just like, oh, right. This, I'm sure this discreetly and naturally happens all the time, but to actually overtly look for younger mentors mm. who are going to keep you connected to the changing world around you that you may be dismissing the way children do it for parents all the time, like they're like constantly telling us how ridiculous we are. And we're like, well, what do you guys do? And then they'll tell us so we can sneak it in there. But to actually look out like, oh, I'd like to, I'd like to stay connected to the ever-changing technology of this world. Yeah, find a younger mentor. You want to know what millennials are really doing? Like, go be a mentee to some. Learn from them. Like, change your perspective. And mm. I'd never heard anyone say that before, especially not at his, like, CEO level. And it was really not only refreshing, but it changed my whole viewpoint. So, mm. dual arrows for mentors. I definitely feel that way as a musician. Like, coming back to music after having kids and then trying to figure out how to get back into this world that was my world for so long that just the way everything's made is completely different it's all changed in like 15 years there's no my all my albums were made on magnetic tape hmm. on reel-to-reel machines <laughs> i know and what those are we had one <laughs> right and the first one like the edits were made by hand like and yeah there's yeah. a reason they call it cutting it together. Cutting yeah, it so, together. So the, and, 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 and on the floor is that's where, it, right. that's where it went. That's where the tape fell. On the, on the cutting floor. On my first radio show ever in Colorado, we did that mm-hmm. in our interviews. We just do it in the room. Yeah. Is it, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, Absolutely. It's cool. But what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was afraid of when I cut you off. You were saying that so much had changed oh, in right, 15 right. years. Yeah. So, like, you really literally have to find somebody who's younger than you to really roll out the technology, mm. you know. But it's or not someone just who's, that either. Or someone who's been with it through the whole time. Like, when we went to parkour, when I went to parkour with you guys, I was the oldest guy in the room by a lot. <laughs> except for you. You were closing in on me a little bit. I but, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're still the same age difference. Yeah, we are. Yes. You're closing in. I'm not closing in. You're because closing. the older we get, the distance of years becomes less large, right? From right, right, youth right. to old age. So in the for end, a, when you're 84 and I'm 89, we're the same, same age. age. See, for a brief moment, I thought that you had figured something out. And I'm like, stop the presses. I want to know what that secret is. Okay, Let me talk to you about time for a minute because I don't think it is what you think it is. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about the... You know, the horizon of a black hole in its entire... But we're not going to do that right now. We're not going to do that. But when we went to parkour, or when I went to parkour, the thing that I was able to learn from all the younger people was, oh, yeah, how do you get back to, like, abandon, to courage, to, like, pushing past limits that you'd grown comfortable with? Like, and where are all these places where you've decided, like, you can't do that anymore? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there was a lot of that for me, and it was really interesting to move through it and be like, oh, I guess I can do that still, or 
I guess I can learn how to do that even though I'm 50 or whatever. And it did really open me up. And just seeing kids, like, they'll just launch themselves into the air. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, wow, that Button could that kill now. you for sure. And they're like, <laughs> or shatter your forearm. Right. <laughs> but they would do it. And you can draft off that. You can find Ooh, that in yourself, right? Group, and yeah. then start to, like, push into it at your speed. You know, you don't want to try to do that. You want to, like, find your growth edge and push it mm. a little further and... Being around people who are so much younger, they don't have any of the like fears that I've put into my head through experience, and so and they don't tell the same stories. Like so, for me, I have a, like when I started, I had a story of who I was and a story of how I was supposed to be and a story of how people saw me. Whether or not any of those stories were true, I have no idea. They're probably pretty wrong, but I brought all that baggage with me. It was all in my head, and yeah. then mm-hmm. you know you. I've said many times, people ask me, like, what's parkour like? I'm like, well, I'll tell you what. If you find a gang of people who are half your age, especially if they're pleasant and joyful and they love to run around and play outside, all you got to do is go try to keep them in sight. You don't have to do anything else. Just try. Right. They're running again. You know, like, they're <laughs> over there. Oh, how'd they get up there? You're like, just do that. And, like, yeah. you can't help but get your attitude adjusted, get your shit straightened out, get a suntan, get more vitamin D, move around. Like, yeah. it's, just, it's good every yeah. which way if you're with the right group. That's cool. Well, I had I had uh, this reminded me. I've been writing a book. I've been writing a memoir, mm. and I had a really fascinating experience with it because I got all the way through it and realized that everything that I told myself about myself was totally not true. And it was kind of like, what? Like, first of all, I mean, it was a good thing because I was like telling myself a lot of negative stories along the way. And it was kind, but it was mind blowing. Like the the stories we tell ourselves literally like inform our lives in a way that, I mean, have real consequences in the real world. And when you kind of take a step back and look at yourself and decide, wait a second, you know, like actually did a lot of really cool things. You know, like mm-hmm. there there was. This was kind of amazing. So then I had to start the whole thing over again from this whole different slant. Perspective. But it I was, remember that day. It's kind of brilliant, though. <laughs> yeah. Like it was. No, not the day. The day you had that realization where she was yeah. like, memoir. Yeah, yeah. Of like oh, Whoops. the entire narrative. Like the facts didn't change, but the experience of the facts changed completely. So her mind shifted from like, oh, these are all negative stories to these are all like pivotal transformational shifts in my life that have brought me through it. So, like, I traveled all over the world. I, I, like, climbed a pyramid in Egypt. You know, like, I did these things. And then writing about them, I was like, damn, like, I did, <laughs> did those things. Like, you know what I mean? I like, want to be that person. Wait, I am that person. <laughs> it was kind of like that. I was just like, wait a second. Why was I only focusing on the fact that, like, you know, I was, I don't know, like, unhappy in this like one weird way. woman like that. alone in the 80s in Egypt Drop the mic. Like, <laughs> there you go. Like there you go. Found some guy climbs a pyramid, and it's a not a, you know. There's no negatives in it. It's just an interesting story. Like who does that? Brenda. She did that, right? Well, yeah, and it's a it's a whole book of those things where I was just like, well, so you know, go I'll, on the road or <laughs> you know, like the thread that I want to pull on is uh, I don't want to like dig for dirt, but I want to go. Okay, so how do I do that? I mean. Craig should probably do that. But just generally, how does one do that if you suddenly, having heard that story, go, oh, shit, that probably applies to me. 
how, like, do you know the metaphor of like, if you try to take a barn down, you can do it with a hammer or you can do it with a crowbar. If you try it with mm. a hammer, you get, like, you just get exhausted. But if you know, if you put the crowbar in and pry right off spot. a board, yeah. you can get started. So like, where do I put the crowbar if I want to try and do what you did? Because you did it inadvertently. I know how to do it. This is what you do. Oh, me too. Me too. Really? You go first. Okay. okay. One, two. <laughs> do you want to rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> I mean, I don't think you have to write 60,000 words to get there. But if you took a pivotal sort of regret, hmm. maybe, or a like moment that you that could have gone one way, but it went this other way, and, and really like wrote that story as if you were telling it to somebody... And then step back and look at those decisions that you made and kind of say like, well, here's the situation you were in and what did you do and how did you do it? I bet you'll find that you did some courageous things, even though you're seeing the, the, the hard truth of it. Like, you know, I went out with a guy who was a drug addict and I like didn't, I didn't care for myself, you know, like at this, this is before Thomas. <laughs> BT. <for> BT. <laughs> but, you know, like that's all I could focus on. But in, but at the same time, like I dropped everything in New York. I moved to Minneapolis. I toured around the country, like, you know, but I, it was like my past, my, you know, like my kind of vision of myself was not, it wasn't healthy enough to to allow me to say, no, this is a dangerous situation. You know, like I was just like, oh, that's probably where I belong. You know, mm. like, and there was a lot of that, like a lot of me making that sort of ultimately wrong decision because I just felt like that was what my life was supposed to look like. But when I, but I, when I looked back and, and saw like all these other things that I did, I was like, I was trying the whole time to kind of like, it was like two people, you know, like I was trying to find my way out, but I didn't know how to like get the perspective because I was too young. I, I think like having that perspective and looking back and sort of telling, retelling your story with compassion and love and like sort of like that, like when I... <clears throat> figured all this out, I sort of wrote a new kind of like intro to the whole thing. And it, and I dedicated it to my younger self and said like, you know, this is because I wanted her to know that she was awesome. You know, she was strong. She was this like light in the world. And this other stuff happened along the way. It wasn't that she was this other stuff. Does mm. that make sense? I think it makes sense. All right. What's that totally your, makes sense. What's your thing? Yeah. Top that. Go. So, the word scripture, text, sutra, and jing is the Chinese word for scripture, all those words come from a root. And in each one of those languages, the root relates to either sewing, like sutra and suture, or text is textiles and cloth. Jing scripture is about thread, single line of thread. And they all relate to this idea of the thread of reality being woven together through our perceptions and expressed in words. And so scriptures, when people go to them, are like hidden tools that are designed to peel back 
the confusion of reality and display the thread between heaven and earth of reality as it's woven together. And I think the goal of studying any kind of scripture is that it should deliver this clearer sense of reality. Like we could talk about dependent origination and how that affected her view of reality and then changing the originating thought of how she perceived it shifted that. But the idea that you could write a story of a moment or that you could do a meditation where you visualize yourself being 85, 90 years old mm-hmm. and coming back to tell yourself what you need to know right now about who you are. Like bring in that future wisdom, right? But to write down in some way the story you're looking at or the facts that you're looking at or the way that you're perceiving it and try and strip it down is like like she wrote a scripture of her life in order to become aware of her life. She exposed it in this way that she couldn't hold on to the emotional content that kept her in the limited view of it when it's just snapshotting through in her mind. And instead she laid it all out. And then once it's all laid out, you're like, oh, those are just Lego parts. (laughs) Like I could build a boat or I could build a cannon. (laughs) I could build a hot air balloon or I could build pain and suffering. (laughs) 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 And with each of these things, like this is what all the major teachings teach us. And I think it's what you learn through movement practices and why we use movement practices is because you eliminate the language piece, right? You take the symbol out of it and you start to just find yourself relating in nature, which is one of the best ways to understand yourself. And the movement's like, oh, okay, what's the story here? Okay, let's toss the story. Now what's left? And eventually you're just left with you at this very deep, visceral, metaphorical level for your, I mean, it's a metaphor for your imagination it's actually reality and you're like oh right i'm me this is me right now tomorrow's a different me a minute from now is a different me but this is me right now and then i go back to the like you know what finger would you cut off like Hmm. what part of you are you willing to like remove from you in order to not have gone through that but still somehow get the lesson no you're not going to get the information like you're cultivating this path and so yeah, we definitely were on trajectories of, of like, I, th- I mean, I grew up believing this, and I think you did too, but that, like, suffering was required mm-hmm. for revelation and for genius. And I wanted to be, like, a genius <laughs> of some kind. I didn't know what kind. A genius of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sort of made that my art form for a while. But I think, yeah, like... Yeah, we definitely both did. <laughs> The idea that those things are connected, you know, you eventually, or at least I eventually realized, was they're not true at all. Like, in our tradition in the Chuanjin Longmen, which is the Dragon Gate Complete Reality School, it's not a pretentious name at all, (laughs) is that the spark of enlightenment exists, you know, deep inside your mind. And all you have to do is remove everything and you'll suddenly be enlightened. And they're of the two kinds of enlightenments that are out there, the sudden enlightenment school is based on that. Like at the moment at which you remove all obstruction, like single snap of the fingers. And I'm not claiming enlightenment, but with each level of suffering that I've kind of tossed aside, it's been like that. Like I've been like, it's like this in parkour. Like you're like trying to get that front flip and trying to get that front flip and trying to get that front flip. And maybe you're at it for six months. And then all of a sudden one day you just go and do it. And that last step is just one step that, like, all of a sudden you're there. Mm. 
but that process leading up to it, that shifting and changing, that journey is the like persistence piece that gets you to that revelation. Your body could basically do the flip the whole time. Your brain just had to learn how to like take away every fear and obstruction around not being able to do it and explore how to reprogram to do it, right? But then once you can do it, you can just do it. You're just there. So that revealing the data, like Brenda's whole life didn't disappear when she reorganized it in this new way where opening up for Bob Dylan in Luxembourg was pretty fucking cool, right? She was like, oh yeah, I, I did that. I, well, that was I always cool. dropped that shit. That was always cool. <laughs> but her whole story turned into like the hero's journey, the origin story of like happiness, like all of the things that you want it to be when you're coming from this place of like, oh, I'd like to enjoy my experience here, which is really the choice that she made in that moment. Oh, my whole story leads up to me enjoying my life. That's a long way of saying. It's a journey. Just that at any moment, if you want to step over to the right or the left or forward and back and suddenly change the perception of the story that you've been telling, you don't have to change all the facts. You don't have to become somebody else. Yeah, changing the facts. I don't mean, like, the facts that have happened in the past, you're not going to change those. But changing the facts of what's about to happen in the future, that's really hard. You know, if you have a a lease and a thing and yeah. a cat and your family is ill, if you want to make changes there, that's really going to be challenging. But in a way, that's easier. Yeah, like, no, you, you make, I think that... You're like, oh, I have a mortgage. Well, I don't have to fix that. You either have to give the bank the deed or the money. It's really straightforward. Do one of those two things. Yeah, and we most, did that. <laughs> that's not where I was going, but yes. Um, but that, that those types of, those facts seem, they seem easier. Right. But also if you have a mortgage, like, you know, you have a house. So great. Mm. Like, you know, it's, it's all, it's all perception. Mm. It's all perception. But what you're saying is that the, the potential like change of the future versus the difficult sort of perceived fixed changing of the past yes. is much more difficult. Fixing the past is yeah. actually really easy, but it feels like it's really hard. Yeah, because it seems set, right? Yeah. That's You know what? I That's because of time. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> That's because of time, because we don't have a sensory organ built to experience time directly. So we understand everything through that linear structure mm. and sanity is based on your like linear structural memory to allow you to place yourself in time and so our memory is our like fixed time scenario that we sort of orient ourselves in life and so if you go around messing with that i think there's a like careful don't check mm-hmm. under the hood too much unless you really know what you're doing thing mm. built into our brains that says like no don't erase that we need that data to make sure we don't fall off the cliff and to know where we are in time and space. But don't you think, I mean, time is pretty much a, a human construct, like a cultural construct, right? Like, yeah, because, I mean, like, you know, 500 years ago, you wouldn't go to like a peasant in a village and say like, you know, what year is it? What time is They'd it? They'd be like, I, yeah, I don't know what this? year it is. Like, yeah. I, they would just be like, oh, the... Yeah, I feel to like I to need to go home because it's going to get dark soon. I didn't bring a torch. You know, like, right. Right, they have a concept. I don't think that's any different. I think we're just more precise now, but that feels like the same thing to me. Right. I think it's much I don't want to argue on radio, but <laughs> look like you're arguing on a it's podcast. It's much more <laughs> circular, you know, like where like our linear, I feel like our linear. 
well, modern linear concept of time has really kind of messed us up a little bit. I, I would agree with that. And I think it comes from technology, but I don't mean like mechanical things. I just mean the idea of using tools in any format. And because I've definitely crawled yeah. down this rabbit hole very far about like <laughs> processes and organizing and structure. And if you're going to use those tools, you can only tackle certain kinds of problems. So I always hate to say like society and culture because I'm just one person, but I think that's an easy path to, I don't know, it's lined with good intentions and you're like, oh, well, I could, I could actually get better sleep, which would be good for me, my physical health. So I probably should set an alarm to get up at 7.30 and I should go to bed. And like, you just realize that if you organize things, things get a little better. It's like the quest for local mm -hmm. maxima versus absolute maxima. If you want to get to the really good stuff, you got to go down through the dip to find the mountain to climb on the other side. But if you use these mm -hmm. technology things, you're going to be searching for like, oh, I don't want to go that way. That's downhill. I don't want to go that way. That's also downhill. You're not like really looking, oh yes, I need to go down over through the swamp up and then over there. So that I spend a lot, I still do it, but I spend a lot of time looking for that local optimization. And 15, maybe 20 years ago, I was like in a crappy place, like the local optimizations were really good. So mm. I just like went, oh, this tool worked before. I can just do it again and I can do it again. And I'm like, it, like change this, change that, change that. But it's the same tool over and over. And now I'm finding, yeah, what you're talking about, like I'm standing on this timeline that I've built of mm -hmm. like who I am. And mm. it, it might be time to pull the rug out. <laughs> pull the rug I mean, out. it's it's an interesting thing to do. Like the the... I mean, I'm using time on like, I'm sort of speaking at the quantum level, which is annoying because I'm not actually a scientist. And so I'm all in hearsay anyway. <laughs> but let's say this, we can't perceive time directly. And let's break that down to something as simple as, okay, the optimization piece that you're talking about, the nature of time and narrative that Brenda's talking about, the quality of time that we experience it as is the same thing in the scriptural world as the duality right so optimizing living is about like optimizing the opposing forces of night and day of good and bad of left and right and to get really good at living is to be in the like most effective use of the resources of your life to optimize the experience you're trying to have and that's amazing that's biohacking that's yeah. all of it right but at the same time, the paradoxical piece is that there's this wholeness or oneness that for some reason our consciousness is also built to connect to. And so we experience the allness of it and the non-duality of it at times as well. And all of these ancient practices are built on generating that state. But now we also know in science, like the whole quality of a flow state and the nature of being in this like infinite moment and how gratifying and incredible that is. And now everyone's seeking it, right? Because they want that feeling of being connected to everything. The connected to everything tools are not the dual tools. So your Newtonian mechanic doesn't work in the quantum world and vice versa. And that management of, okay, I'm going to optimize my biohacking and like my Qigong to keep my body and my parkour to keep my balance and like live a long time and I'm going to eat well. And then at the same time, I'm going to sit down and meditate in whatever way works for me, whether it's like upright posture or lying at the clouds and let my mind go super wide and tap into the connection of all things and not be in my 
micromanaged, you know, or hugely mm-hmm. efficient space. And I'm going to move in and out of those two. And that's like, I mean, that's the thing that I teach people lives, right? to do in the, in the work I do, but it's, it's incredibly satisfying for one thing, but really the coolest thing about it is that like at the moment that you're in your big attachment to your incredibly efficient life that you've built because the rug gets pulled out from under you, which it's coming whether you know it or not. And it, fuck you, it's coming. It's it going to happen. It's just always, it's life. Yeah. So if you're able to pop into the whole thing because you've also trained that, then you're like, oh, yeah, I can let go of this house. I can let go of my attachment to this. I can let go of my business in Tribeca. And I can see what's next. And because you can let it go, then you can see what is going to be possible. And it's like, now you have all these possibilities versus just holding on to that perfectly scripted, optimized life. Yeah. So to switch between the two is an interesting difficulty for people because... If you're just pouring all your energy into, I mean, I'm working with a client like this right now. I just poured all her energy into her life into optimizing every piece of motherhood, health, family, competition, etc. Like great wife to her husband. Boom, she got Lyme disease. She can't move. She's like, I don't know what to do. None of my tools work because I'm only in optimization mode. And I was like, oh, great. Like you have an opportunity. No, I don't say that to people because it's super annoying and nobody wants to hear it then. <laughs> but I'm thinking it like, oh, you have an opportunity right now. Like you're, you just won the lottery. And that's the piece that I think is particularly interested when people make that shift because you're like, oh, I'm in my hardcore optimization. And then practice. Oh, no. Like this is why people do death meditation. This is why people do all of these kinds of experiences mm-hmm. to break out of their optimization piece to see this bigger puzzle. I mean, that's what Vinay, like one of my clients who showed up at my door was like hardcore CEO teaches at Wharton, blah, 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 blah. Like walked through my door and he was like, I want my mind to be free to just grab information anywhere at any time and not bother like thinking about it linearly. Can you help me with that? (laughs) I was like, you're like, I have an awesome job. I was like, dude, you came to the right place. <laughs> yeah, and that would be up three flights of stairs if I remember correctly, right? Like, that's so funny. But it's, that's the, that is the magic dust and the hardest part for everybody. Because when you get really good at optimizing your life, then that's just your jam. Yeah. How do you optimize optimization? We optimize the optimization of the optimization. <laughs> yeah. Or like, oh, I'm a gazillionaire. You're telling me like not being a gazillionaire is my path to freedom. Practicing that. Yeah. I don't want to practice that. That might like cause me to lose all my, okay, attachment. And then that's where all the work always is. But it's a fun game. And being in that dual versus whole realm is the, is where the, excitement is because that's where people come up with like oh i don't know i'll make a search engine yeah like that's where that stuff comes from right it comes in those places where you like scrap the linearity of the problem like all the normal steps and you're like oh how do i what's another way to get there well it's funny because as you're saying that i'm i'm seeing too like that you know you're talking about it in in very businessy terms but 
going back to what we were saying before, like when you have a story and you connect yourself to that story instead of connecting yourself to your core self, you really just risk losing all your opportunity and freedom, you know, like coming back to like, like when, when I was making music in the nineties, like my songs were dark, like, you know, but I was always in a dark place. I was in a crazy city that was falling apart and there was AIDS and there was crack and there was, you know, just all kinds of tough things to talk about. And then now I've been sort of, you know, out of the city for so long. I've raised two boys. Like, I'm mom, you know, like, I'm all these other things now. But then going back to songwriting, I'm like, well, if I stay connected to that story of who I was, which I was kind of doing for a long time, I was like, how am I supposed to write? Like, what do I write about? This isn't going to be interesting to anyone, you know, like, if it's not coming from this place of desperation and like frustration and all these other emotions driving it. But that's only because I've been telling myself that story that, Mm. that that's where all that comes from, you know? Mm. What is it about that noise? Mm. Mm. (laughs) It's like a nonverbal hallelujah or amen. (laughs) Hear, hear. (laughs) To your husband, or to your husband. Yes, darling. That's an excellent point. <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, when I'm like working with people, I'll often break out my Boston accent just to like totally mess with their perception of everything because they like think they're bringing in this like super high end guy. Da, 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 da. And then I'll just be like, hey, you guys. Are you going out for beers after we meet up here today? Because, you know, we're doing some spiritual things. And we're going to have some emotional conversations that could tend to really rock you. And I think it's important that you have, like, a way to process it with your community afterwards. So if you want to go get, like, a couple Budweiser's and, like, throw some dots maybe after, I could go with you even. Although, you know, that's not always normal, but I could do that for you guys. <laughs> and it's like... You know, they laugh and they're like, oh, okay, we just have no idea what's happening here. Which is what I'm trying to do. I want to get them off balance yeah. enough so they can open up. And it's same thing in parkour. Like I've, I use stuff from parkour still all the time with people because all of those practice tools around like balance and contact and relating to your environment are mm. so useful at seeing what you're bringing to the table in the moment, like all your preconceptions about falling, leaning, connecting, touching, moving, like gravity, like they're all right there. You see like, oh, aggressive, submissive, doesn't care, needy, wounded, needy, (laughs) deeply deeply wounded, (laughs) like all of it's right there. And it's just in the frequency. It doesn't have any of the words of the judgment of the bullshit attached to it. You see the frequency and you're like, oh, Okay, then you can work with that. Yeah. You start here, you start there, you go yeah. there. <laughs> so good. You may not care, but sometimes people ask me what I think my role is here. <laughs> like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? But um, I'm just going to presume that, that that might be interesting to you. And I'm often torn between following my own curiosity and then saying things like, well, what kind of music are you writing in response? Like, what emotions have you, are you drawing on now to write your music? Because obviously you're either working on that or you've answered it already. And I'm torn between asking things like, okay, so what's it like to close up 
you know, your school and, and like, well, how do you, that, that was an outlet. Like I, I'm going to bet that that was an outlet for energy for you. Where are you channeling it now? So like I'm torn between asking those kinds of questions, which you can take a swing at if you like, and, and saying things like, all right, how do we help people who are listening? Like there's just so many places we can yeah. go with this. So um, my role, I feel my role is really just to like push the stone so it starts rolling and then get out of the way and just hold the mics. That's kind of what I'm doing. Mm. So do you feel like you want to talk more about your personal journeys or do you want to talk more about the kinds of change you would hope to create in the world? And, and then we could talk about, hey, you're running two really good experiments at creating change in the world already. Or, right? Huh. <laughs> I would hope uh, you're trying uh, to create change in the world. <laughs> so any of that, any of those ideas? I'm a tiny bit worried about how we're doing with that. Yeah, those experiments are not going well. The <laughs> lab blew up the other day. It's in, vi- <laughs> it's in vitro. It doesn't really translate. <laughs> no. uh, wow. I'm interested in what we're doing to help change the world. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I bored mean, with my personal story anyway. And I haven't quite got where I want to be as far as music goes, although I am getting there. I'm, and part of what I'm doing is helping me get there. So that's been kind of interesting, too, because I got a job in February teaching history to high school students. One-on-one. <laughs> one-on-one at a private school that does, like, one-on-one learning. And... The minute I got the job, the whole world went virtual. (laughs) So I've had to ramp up. I have a political science degree from college and um, haven't used it since college pretty much. But I did a lot of teaching along the way, Mm. teaching guitar, teaching voice, teaching writing, teaching, you know, tutoring. And so sort of those two things together kind of aligned me for this job because they needed a history slash English teacher. So, but I didn't have, you know, in my mind, like the whole timeline of teaching history, world history and U.S. history, you know, like I haven't really, you know, had to, I had to brush up a lot. So it's been really a, a lot to, to kind of like learn well enough to then teach. And mm. then the whole like George, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter thing exploded. And then suddenly I was deep in the civil rights movement, teaching it, experiencing it in the everyday. And so it's an interesting question about, you know, what are you doing to help in the world because I've been engaged in teaching this next generation about you know where we come from and and kind of like giving them the opportunity to imagine where we're going and I talk a lot about global citizenry which I think I don't know why that's not in the paper every day you know like why that shift hasn't really happened with the grown-ups because I think that kids are thinking that way. They're thinking much more in terms of us as a as a world than us as a nation. And I had a girl last week who I was teaching about the Vietnam War, and she said, how come I've never learned about this before? She's in eighth grade. It's like, she's like, I didn't know anything about this. It's like a 20-year war. And I was like, <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. And she's, she said, is that because we lost? Is that why I haven't learned about it? <laughs> They're really good questions. And, and even, and then my own edification, like going back, I've been watching documentaries like nonstop. Nonstop. <laughs> on like, you know, the whole history of African-American publishing companies in America. I didn't even know there were any. There were like 500 before the 1950s. And just this entirely other universe. Everything, the, the, Bob Kennedy, the Bobby Kennedy for President documentary is astounding. Which it's, everyone should watch. Everyone should watch that. It's yeah, on Netflix. I seen it. It's on Netflix, and it talks about the moment that George Wallace stood in the doorway not letting, like, these young black students register for college. Bobby Kennedy was attorney general. He was the guy who was like... And they have footage of, like, the conversations of, and the thing happening, and they go back and forth between it, and you're just like... It's And we're here again. It's up to the surface again where we can actually work at it. And watching those documentaries and seeing, like... Like, the number of people, like, she was like, do you know how many people were assassinated in 1968? It's just, cra- I mean, <laughs> it's like, she's like, 1968, like I'm obsessed year. with this year. <laughs> All these things happened, but it was just, it's been pretty amazing, actually, to have her be doing this. And she's just walking around the house constantly sharing <laughs> facts because she's trying to cram all this information into her head to, and weave it into to a- teach. And it's amazing, like, how much stuff is missing from history that she's digging up. It's just like, oh, that, no, nobody ever said that, nobody ever said that, nobody ever said that. It's just that. not being taught. And and the the women that are not being taught about, like, everyone knows the name Cesar Chavez for the, you know, like, the, the grape strike, Delano grape strike, and this and that. And Dolores Huertas is this woman who who founded the... United Farm Workers Union with him. And then she was literally standing next to Bobby Kennedy when he was shot. Like she was, she's still alive. She's still doing, Mm. you know, civil rights work with Latino groups today. And, and I'd never heard of her. And she's this like back page in the textbook that like I found. And then when I was watching the documentary, I was, I mean, she's leading him, you know, through these crowds in in 1968. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. Wilma Mankiller, she was the head of the, like, oh, God, so you can look things up, right? She was, (laughs) (laughs) she, she, I think she was, like, the head of the Cherokee Nation, but she became, like, the, you know, Native American leader of the whole Native American leadership. And, like, I mean, she was so amazing, and she was good friends with Gloria Steinem and, like, informed Gloria Steinem's thinking, and, like, I'm just—it's blowing my mind, like, the amount of stuff that that we just don't know, and that, as an educator, I feel like, wow, that's—I should know all this stuff, and then let people know, you know? So do you think—the question I always have um, is— I have the standard high school history right. education, you know, here's history in 17 bullet points. Doop. Right. And I and I never really went any further with history. And I'm wondering 
if the solution to, like we call that a problem, if the solution to the problem is to teach more history or to try to figure out how to teach people to be passionate about history. Mm. Because... I think the like, second thing. Because obviously it has to be distilled. Like you can't... Right. Uh, like what's, what's the, the TV series, MASH ran longer than right. the war did, you know, like, right. so it, it, you, 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 and even then they didn't tell the story of the war. Like it, right. that's just a sitcom. So you have to, you have these experiences, which took exactly as long as they took. So if you're going to share that with someone, they have two choices. You can go live through the Korean war, or we can give you a textbook, which cooks it down. So as soon as you cook it down, you're getting somebody's viewpoint or a group of people's viewpoint. Right. And it feels to me like what's worked so well for you was somewhere you got a passion for history. I mean, it sounds like it, well, if you have a polyscience degree, you must have had some passion for that a long time ago. And now this, you know, stream flowed into that and that little passion (laughs) turned into a big passion. So I don't think anybody could have ever taught you enough history, but somewhere along the way you picked up a passion, maybe you have many passions and this is a small one, but you picked up a passion for history. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how do we ignite passion in others? Because not everybody's going to learn a lot of history. But if a few people become really passionate about history, then they act as stewards. Sure, yeah. And then somebody else becomes really passionate about physics and somebody else becomes really passionate about medicine. And right. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on like, how do you, I think I know the answer, but how do you share or ignite that passion in people? Because maybe we don't need to talk about history, we can talk about other things, but how, how do you share that? How do you share passion? Well, what I've what I've been doing with my students is because you do you have like bu- bullet points that you need to hit, and that's the Common Core curriculum, and you have to say those things and make sure they understand those those touch points. Beyond that, so like for one of my students, I I said so. This is an honors class. You have to do an honors project. So I want you to pick something. It can be protests. It can be inventions through history. It could be, you know, like women's feminism. It could be Native American culture, the prison system. Grab a thread. Whatever you are drawn to, like whatever you want to think about. And then as we go through the decades, just pick Two things, each class, research them, put them on a slide. And then the next week, you know, that'll be your homework, basically. So so this kid picked protests. And he, you know, by the end had like 25 slides that were about like protests that happen all throughout time. And, you know, I had him write an introduction and a conclusion. And so then in the end, he had this, like, we made it into, like, an ebook. It was like a snapshot of history that he had discovered through something he was interested in. And that that worked really well. Some of my other students, like, they, they had, they struggled, you know, just to even get, I think it's, but it's mainly, I think, because of the virtual thing. Like, if they had been in the school, they would have gone and done it and then gone home. But, but it was, but I think finding something that works for each person while you're kind of dealing with like all the like bullet points mm. that you have to deal with is ideal. Like it worked great in that, in that moment. Cause he was like everything from Gandhi to like the gay sippins to the sit-ins to the, you know, like 
he didn't know anything about Tiananmen Square. Like, he was just like, really? They just shot, like, you know, like, they just <laughs> shot their own people, you know? I was like, yeah, they, yeah, they, mm-hmm. that's what they did, you know? Like, that happened. So we got to have a lot of interesting conversations because of information that he he found. So I don't know. I think, like, actually connecting with people's interests to kind of do, like, separate projects is the way to do it. But it's not easy in a big classroom. Like, I'm working one-on-one with kids, so mm. it's... It's yeah, it gives you an edge. But I still think you can do it. I still think you can say to everybody, okay. But I think it's also the scaffolding of it. Like, do one slide, do one slide, do one slide. At the end, we're going to put it all together. But but if you just give somebody a big project to do, it's, like, overwhelming. Hmm. So... I think, um, yeah, what do you think? I think you have to be able to find yourself in the thing you're looking at. Yeah, and exactly. ideally, you have to be able to find maybe who you want to be or like some part of who you want to be to really like dive all the way in. Like, you have to be able to identify enough with it and then find the like place you're trying to go that it looks like it has that information in and in the in history it's interesting because you study where people have been in order to understand how to like be here right and this kid she left out some information about him that would explain like why he chose the things that he chose i happen to know his story a little bit and you see immediately like oh yeah he saw himself in history in this course and then he found a way to like make meaning in it and then see where he was going and express it through this. And it's funny, we were, again, in our, like, Thursday night class this week, one of the students was like, dude, I can't sit down and meditate. She's like, I don't want to, I don't know, like, I don't have the discipline. And discipline was one of my trigger words for a long time. Because <laughs> I don't have the discipline either, air quotes. <laughs> and I was like, well... First, let's talk about discipline for a second. This word comes from the term disciple, which means to surrender completely unto. And if you're doing something that's for your own development, it's really about surrendering completely unto you. So how would you want to do it if you were going to make it up? Because until you can like put this into a scenario where instead of doing someone else's thing someone else's way... You find how to find yourself in it and then be yourself in it. I was like, meditate when there's time, when you can like relax, do it in a way that you can relax. Just breathe into your belly, like to any of these things, like lie on the ground, stare. My biggest thing I teach people to do is stare at the clouds Clouds. and breathe in their belly. Hmm. Because if you do those two things, you'll hit like most of the major neurological triggers that'll put you into the state that we're trying to get you into. I put a muse on my kid's head the other day. Do you know what muse is? Muse is this um, portable EEG that syncs up to an app and tracks your brainwave states and it'll tell you which ones you're in. And I was trying to teach him how to meditate. So I was like, where are the muse, dude? And he's like listening to it and doing the muse. And then he comes downstairs the other day and this is how I know that we share genetic material. He's like, dad, guess what? And I was like, what and he was like i put the muse on and i played video games for 50 minutes and i'm 
had the deepest meditative state in my brain that I've ever had. And he shows me like all the data Mm -hmm. on the app that like tells you like he's like in this much theta, this much delta, this much concentration. And I was like, okay, I've just lost the war on video games for sure. Right. (laughs) Which which of these? But also I'm really interested in what just happened Mm -hmm. and I want to know more now. So, but it was funny. He like found his way to be in that Mm -hmm. thing. And now the question I'm asking myself is, can I get a coin-operated video game? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, is is the brain is the like neurological change that he's experiencing during that video game experience of the same quality as the other meditative experience? And I'm that's like a hypothesis I'm currently yeah. asking and like building question. studies mm. or like experiments around because yeah, I want to know I? like what that means because mm. I don't intuitively I don't think it is. The muse, the device, there could be differences to exactly what it's measuring. And yeah. having done a couple of meditating sessions, you may be a little more subtly attuned to the quality of what you're getting um, than the devices. But it is certainly a, that's a surprising result. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. So there's a company out of Colorado that has a much more advanced version that has like 35 different tag points on it. But I'm playing around with like making a study out of it. But it doesn't matter. The point is like, he found his way into that mm-hmm. practice and that I'm sure will lead him to see like what would happen if I did the muse in front of the tree mm. or how about at lying the, down at the, the clouds. clouds. Yes, yes. And so that process of like yeah, finding your own way, like I'm an unstructured person. I'm a nonlinear person. I cannot operate in the linear realm, the linear way. And so for me, I have to operate in the present moment no matter what I'm doing, using the kind of tools and skills that I have. And from everything from like, oh, where are my keys? What's the most logical place your keys would be? That's how I try to find my keys. I don't try to remember because I can't access the data. (laughs) If I could remember, I wouldn't be looking for my keys. (laughs) But it's everything's like that. And that requires like a high level of trust to say like, like I went to the flow state genome project or the flow genome project mm-hmm. what it's called and i did their like flow questionnaire where you find out like who you are and they're like oh you live in flow all the time <laughs> that was their <laughs> thank you very like, much you're a flow person and i was like thanks that was helpful <laughs> <laughs> that's 20 but, that's 25 minutes i'll never get back but <laughs> mistakes were made <laughs> <laughs> but the process of like understanding your operating system right and like being able to be yourself, that's another piece of it. Like, I was an F student. I was a terrible student in high school. I have advanced degrees. Like, I was a horrible student because I tried to study and be in that mm. way of being. And then I tried to teach in that way of teach. Like, now mm. I show up and deliver, like, this very particular thing that can only be derived in the alchemy of the moment of the people in the room and me. Mm. And yeah, I draw on all those tools. But the thing I've learned to do is just trust, trust being, the moment, yeah, just and be. being me in it. Mm-hmm. Like I will find the thread. Wow, there is really a theme happening here. There is. I will find that primal thread. Be you. Be you. Not Boston University. No. <laughs> <sighs> if you wanna sing out, sing out. I don't know this song. Really? It's the theme to Harold and Maude. There's a million ways to be. You know that there are 
Have you not seen Harold and Maude? I have seen so many movies, but I'm thinking maybe I haven't seen Harold and Maude. It's an old, long it's, time ago. That doesn't slow me down. A, I've yeah. seen Rushmon Gate on purpose, not required <laughs> viewing. I've seen that. I just rewatched Casablanca this week. Oh, you know what? When you go, sometimes when you go back to movies like that, it's like, oh, that's so great. And you're like, oh my God, I like this movie. Like sometimes you feel bad when you watch movies like that. Right. Well, the 90s movies are feeling a lot like that to me lately. Yeah. I've been digging into them and I'm like, oh, oh, that's a little tone deaf. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. No, it's weird. The 90s movies, like they're nonstop, like potty mouths. Mm. Like they're but not well, just that. Cursy, cursy. It's just language. I'm just no, kidding around. I mean, now, we were the worst curses, but weird. I feel like we were all like doing that then. Like nobody oh. even cared. Next like you're going to pick on 80s neon. Like, come on now. There's got to be certain boundaries here on the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we listened to, what was it? Don't Stop Believing was my kitchen cleaning song this morning. Mm. I did on Spotify, we, like Don't Stop Believing radio. And then mm. we listened to it. Mm. Uh, okay. I listened to it <laughs> and I freaking sang along with it too. No, you got to own it, right? You got to own it. You got to own it. You got to own it. I don't know what could happen. Let's find out. (laughs) Anyway. um, Yeah, we got off track. We got off track. uh, Also, for you, I I know that as far as like kind of discovering yourself and your way of impacting the world, the song you're writing right now is a song about... John Lewis? a political song about John Lewis's life. Yeah, and it's funny because my first album that came out in 1990 was all political songs. Because I was still in that sort of, you know, I went to school learning all that stuff. And then I think I just always wanted to understand the world. Like, I just want to understand how things worked. So, kind of digging into the people. I was really interested in the people. I was interested in like Mao and Stalin and like, you know, like, like how they created these revolutions and what was a revolution anyway, you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah, now I'm, I'm sort of like, I was less interested in, in America, oddly. Like I, it was all international relations. That was my major. But Going back and seeing, like, really, like the the granular, the granular version of of what happened here in America, and especially in light of the protests and the 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 kind of like real sort of unveiling of segregation in our country, it's like I'm asking those same questions that I would ask back then, like, you know, well. You know, why? Why are we this segregated? You know, like, all, every student I had said, yeah, you know, there really wasn't, it was, maybe there was like a couple minorities in my school. Like, like basically, we're more segregated now right. than we were in the 70s. Like, how is that possible? But it is. It's not going in the other direction. It's not like we've gotten more less, or sorry, less segregated over these many years since slavery, we've gotten more segregated. Like the, it's... Right, people have chosen, chosen like groups or whatever that, whatever that drew their attention, they go to that group, they move there, they hang out with those people. Well, yeah, and, and, and minorities have been like literally kept out of white 
neighborhoods, white schools, white, you know, it's been, I mean, it's weird because it's not like it was intentional, but it was intentional, you know, like, um, another thing that happened in 1968, which I think is amazing. (laughs) I'm obsessed with 1968 is the Miss America contest of 1968. Mm -hmm. Black people were not allowed to be in the Miss America competition. So there was a Miss Black America competition that happened down the block in Atlantic City. And then on the boardwalk, there were, there was like a whole feminist group that was protesting. So they were like burning bras while like Black Miss America was happening in this hotel. White Miss America was happening in this hotel. And, and like, I, I had no idea. Like, I just never learned about that. Like, we have not taught the reality of segregation in our schools. We haven't taught really anything. What we, All we teach is that, like, in the 60s, like, the Voting Rights Act got passed. Okay, everybody can vote now, no poll taxes. And the, and the other big, what is it, 19, the... So the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act get passed and they're like, okay, everybody's good now, but nothing changes. Like, nothing changes. I mean, do they even teach about... I was in desegregation. I was in, like, middle school during desegregation and forced busing in Boston. Yeah. I don't feel like that comes up in history books at all now. Or it's like a glance over. No. But that's also back to what Craig was saying. Like, that's the nature of history is that... It gets distilled. It gets distilled. Who's holding the pot? Like, yeah. who cooked it down? Right. You're going exactly. to get a perspective. And I, and I think, like, like zooming out, not because I don't want to stop talking about this, but just to zoom out, what's the fix for that? Well, the fix for that is to get people to be passionate about, yeah. like, a thread or seven threads that they want to pull on, and then you pull on it, and then you become the next person who writes the better book you know, for people who want to learn about that thread, whatever. So the student you were talking about, like right. he'd write a book, but he really pulled on that thread and, and actually took the time to go look into all those different events that for him were along that thread of thinking, that thread of history. So, And you can find that now. Like that's one of the amazing things about this time, right? Yeah, it's really you can cool. Actually, I was listening to um, Radiolab yesterday and they were going through all the news media information about the 1918 pandemic Mm -hmm. Mm. and there's almost none really like it's almost never in the headlines they found like the last page a paragraph in the new york times that said like six million people have died from this pandemic or but it was it just didn't have any of the news coverage that it had now and they were trying to understand why Mm. and one of their theories was around the idea that like they couldn't visualize the disease in any way the way we can now. Like people are like, oh, I know what the coronavirus looks like. And, right. mm. and so it's just this thing that's happening that's almost like a ghost. You know, it's almost like a curse or something more than something they can it's tangibly get hold of. Yeah. Well, probably they also didn't have the media to really get the word out to make any difference. I think I, I always hate to do anecdotal. I think I read, but I believe I read that like (laughs) the average person consumes more media in a day than like you would have in a year, a hundred years ago. So I mean, I don't know what the actual statistics are, but Mm. if you think about the like 
I think about my grandparents and what media would they have consumed. And like, I saw it. My grandfather would read, I don't know if it was the New York Times, I think he would just read the local paper from his local city, which had an AP wire, you know, inclusion. And they watched regular TV, which I don't even recall them watching news. Like it would just be some soap. My grandmother would watch some soap operas and they'd watch like Jack Benny and the, you know, the Gleese, like that kind of stuff. So like- Such a good point, yeah. That's not yeah. a lot of media to consume. Yeah, no. And and I'm very, I'm like fanatical about the media that I consume, but just the volume, I probably read more this morning in 45 minutes than they might've read in a month. Mm. Like my grandfather might've seen in the newspaper in a month. My grandfather just read a paper in Yiddish. Now that you're saying that, I'm remembering because I remember looking at it and learning Hebrew in Hebrew school, but it didn't have any vowels. And I was like, how do you do it without (laughs) What's up with this, right? The vowels, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I just remember them, you know, having it explained to me like, Oh, well in Yiddish they don't use vowels, they just kinda know what the words are, Mm. you know. Because the vowels in Hebrew are like the dots and dashes that go under the um, words. They're not really like letters in the like same way. It's like a phonetic way. piece of the yeah. consonant. So anyway, but but yeah, they. I don't think they even read an, an English newspaper. Like I think they just had the Yiddish paper around. It's, I'm thinking this like this seems to circle back in my mind like, oh, well, if, if you... F- as a teacher, if you ignite a passion in someone, then they're suddenly going to, without even realizing it, they're going to become more mindful about what they're consuming. And mm-hmm. they're, they only have so many waking hours. So instead of, I don't want to knock various social media, but instead of doing whatever they were doing, they're going to spend their time on following that passion. I used to, I used to say to prospective martial arts students, when they seemed pretty into it, I would be like, okay, I would like you to explain to me the eight hours a week when you are sitting in seated meditation doing absolutely nothing, like, why don't you tell me where those eight hours lie? Because I'm going to stick eight hours of martial arts. Yeah, you got to pack your bag. You got to do the laundry once a week. You have to drive the dojo. You have to go to class. You have to go to the hospital once in a while. You have to, you know, and people go, well, no, my day is completely full. Okay. So please point to the eight hours of things every week that you are willing to give up to make the space to train. It's the same story in all martial arts. Right. I didn't come up with that idea. But it's the same thing with mm. media consumption. In order for me to be as intentional as I am now about, I really want to consume media about podcasting, not listen to podcasts, but the technology in that, I had to figure out what I was chucking. And like I decided to chuck reading nonfiction went under the bus 20 years ago. And I think that's like the, the gateway drug for people is not to, I'm, I'm hypothesizing, not to tell them what to learn, yeah. but to show them how to retool or how to be more specific about what they are learning. And I right. think you're, you're doing that by uh, sparking passion in people. One and I think the generation hopes. down from us, that's what they do. Like Mason's going to build a new PC and he was like, okay, I've been running tons of YouTube videos on how to build it. So mm. when the parts get here, I know how to build it. And Damn. I was like, right. And that's, I feel like we've all kind of converted and learned how to do that. We're immigrants. But they're right. growing, they yeah. grew up in that mm-hmm. world and just do that. Like, yeah. they're Haters. like, oh, how do you do this? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm always reminded of the scene from the first Matrix movie when, like, they're shopping for weapons, and it's like a blank, right. empty white space, and then yeah. just, like, rows of stuff show up. It's like, you know, everything is just in time. The knowledge is available just in time, and that's that's good. Um, for me, the hardest part of doing podcasts is that I have to stop somewhere. So let's first, I, I want to have a chance to say... Are there any stories that you guys would like to share, either in a separate story or a story that and sometimes couples tend to share the same story, whatever. But <laughs> when I say, is there a story that you'd like to share? Anything come to mind? 
So my grandmother came here from Greece, and she was 15, 16. My grandfather came here when he was 11. After he sort of stabilized himself here, he went back to Greece and married my grandmother, who, from the way the story tells it, was in love with someone else, and her older brother wanted her dowry, and my grandfather wasn't looking for her dowry, and so the older brother would financially make out in this deal, and women had much less agency in those days, and she was married to my grandfather, and they came to the U.S. So there's this, like, kind of dark story of my grandmother. Wait, how old was he when he came back to Greece to get her? Like 19, okay. 20, not old. And they moved to Poughkeepsie, New York, where all the Greeks were going at that time, and um, my mother was born there. And And my experience with my grandmother, so I'm the youngest of five children, and my grandmother was already really, you know, quote-unquote old in those days. And my grandfather died before I have any memory of him. But I would meet with my grandmother at her house in Poughkeepsie, and we'd go visit her. And because she didn't speak any English, although my mother said she just pretended not to speak English because she didn't want to hear anything from anybody. And she would say, Elodo tete, Elodo, which means come here. And I'd come into the kitchen in her house, and it was this little round bay window kitchen on the second floor of this two-family house in Poughkeepsie. And I'd sit down, and she'd just start feeding me. And I loved to eat. And we had this relationship of her Greek food and me receiving it and her kind of delivering it. I never saw her where she wasn't wearing an apron in my entire life, hmm. except at Christmas. And she would just feed me and feed me and feed me, and we'd hang out in the kitchen. No one else would come in. We wouldn't really talk, but we'd spend hours with me just kind of eating in her kitchen and hanging out. And last night, I made bastizo, which is Greek lasagna, basically. And it had just kind of come up in like one of our meal planning things. And I was like, oh, let's make bastizo, which I've only made once before in my life. And I like found myself making this food last night and I'm like in the smells and I start like being in my grandmother's kitchen and I feel this you know ancestral link through the food back to this whole line that I don't really know because my mom was kicked out of the whole community when she married my dad who was an Irish Catholic <laughs> from Rhinebeck <laughs> and they moved us to Boston and then raised us as Episcopalians so we were totally taken out of the Greek realm. Orthodox yeah and so one of my linking points is food and I'm cooking this food and then dinner, like, I don't know, it was like 9.30 at night when the thing came out of the oven. <laughs> it took forever. And I was like, oh, we're even on like Greek time, like post-siesta yeah. afternoon, summer, evening dinner. And the kids came down and we had this like amazing just eating festival. And and we noticed like lately the kids haven't wanted to eat with us or do anything with us really and now that we've been I've been cooking these kinds of foods they're down to just show up when it's done, when it's ready and like hang out and all of a sudden we've all been hanging out more than we have lately and so this whole like link to my grandmother and to food and to this whole family connection and and 
just how important it is to like offer nourishment to your children as a way to like bring them into the experience together. And so then I like take a picture of the bastizo and text it to my sisters. Be like, guess what I made tonight? I saw Miss Yaya. And then they text me back like, I know, right? Or, oh, I've never tried to make that. Or, and all of a sudden, like now I'm out into this next layer of connection because of this woman cooking me food when I was a little kid. Do you remember what Dylan said last night? No, what did he say? He said, Dad, you you made the whole house smells like lamb and 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 like what it is cheese and like you made the whole house smell amazing or something like that. He, yeah, he was just <laughs> he was he was up in his room and he like, you know, the smell came up and got mm-hmm. him and brought him down. Like he was like, Oh, you made the house smell so amazing. That was so cute. It was so that's and I never talk about grandparents because the, she's the only one of the four I ever knew. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, my relationship with her is like pretty much nonverbal. <laughs> she used to also play this game where she'd drum on my back and sing this song about love in Greek called Me Agape. But we were, our relationship was kind of, you know, back to our thing about story, right? Like there was no language running it. It was just this raw experience or pure experience. And so when I come back to it, it's just right there. But it was nice to have her in the house yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really interesting because we a couple of weeks ago, we so it's, it's been a hard transition with the coronavirus shutdown because the kids were home trying to learn from home. Thomas was pivoting with his business. And then I got this job suddenly. So I was teaching. I'm online doing virtual classes. Then I have like a five-minute break, run upstairs, get my son on his computer for his virtual class, like run to the other room. Are you doing your thing? Okay, run back downstairs, you know, and Thomas is on with like a client or whatever. It's just been a madhouse. And that shift where I was kind of, I was doing some different part-time jobs or whatever, but suddenly I was working, you know, and, um, and dinner just went away. <laughs> like Everything just kind of went away. The house was a mess and the, every, it was all the focus went to like figuring out what happened in the last hundred years of history. And, and so a couple weeks ago we were like, all right, we're halfway into summer and we have no structure and we're still working. Like, and the kids are just waking up at two and they can't sleep at night. And what, It was a mess. I said, well, let's just have dinner. Let's start there. 6.30, dinner. And that's what we'll do. And we realized we were also spending like a ridiculous amount of money on food because we were just like, just get a lot, you know? Like, And then half of it was getting thrown away. We were just like, this isn't working. So, so we decided we're just going to cook meals and have dinner. That's the only thing we we start. And it's just work. It's working. That is working, right? Like yes. somehow, like the boys it's are bizarre. just like so happy to eat. It's like your grandmother knew something. She had yeah, some information. I think grandma had it going yeah. on. She was smart. She was wicked smart. <laughs> wicked smart. My boy is wicked smart. <laughs> <laughs> so good. 
Did you have a story about your grandparents? Hmm. Um, about my grandparents. So, didn't know my mom's parents that well. They lived in L.A. And my dad's parents lived in New York. I mean, the thing... So I have this synchronicity with my grandmother because she was also a singer. And I, I think she also... I, and I also grew up with a lot of anxiety, and she grew up with anxiety. So she had this, she was agro, agoraphobic. And like the only thing that got her out of the house was opera <laughs> and the beauty parlor. And that was it. And, um, and then she also had this very sort of, I think she also had a negative story that kind of like followed her through life. And it was, and it was also my, my parents' story of her, which is that like she grew her mom died when she was 12 and she, you know, wanted to go to this, this school that she had been accepted to as a singer and her father wouldn't let her and she had to raise her brothers. And then she ended up like just sewing coats in this factory and like, Everything was kind of like poor grandma, you know? And I think she just kind of went with it. She kind of like let that story be her life. And Thomas brought up this, you know, that I that I opened for Bob Dylan in Paris. Well, in Luxembourg and Paris. So, well, so... So it, the story's actually part cooler of, than we were told. Okay. It's part of the story because <laughs> when when I did that show, so I played in Luxembourg, then the next show was in Paris. I had these two dates opening for him. And it was really a highlight of my career in a lot of ways. And my album was doing really well in France. It was playing on the radio. So it was like this kind of dream come true sort of week I had there and and ending in this show in Paris. And, you know, I I had these flowers that the label had gotten me, this huge bouquet of flowers. And I was with my friend and we were in the taxi going back to the hotel after this show. And I get to the hotel and the, you know, the concierge hands me this little envelope and he says, oh, this is for you. And it's a message from my family, from my parents saying, your grandmother died. You need to come home tomorrow. And because, you know, we're Jews. So they go right and they get buried like the next day. So, so I go from this, you know, dream where I'm like literally just a flat out rock star, right? To Northburg in New Jersey, where I'm just like, honey, do you want a little bun cake? Because there's some left. How was the show? Hmm. Like it, this kind of ridiculous transition where my brain is just like, oh, what is, what is going on here? And I'm, and I'm, and I took, but I took these flowers that I had gotten from the label with me all the way back to the funeral. And when, you know, they, it, at um, Jewish funerals, you 
shovel dirt and throw it onto the onto the casket when they lower it down. And so I did that when it was my turn. And then I took these flowers and I threw them also into the grave. And I thanked her. And it was like this amazing sort of... It's kind of a similar thing, you know? Yeah. It was like, even though she never found her way, she did She did actually sing on the radio in, in the 40s. But nobody has a recording of it. There's no... You know, like, I can only imagine her joy because everything I ever experienced was my dad complaining and, you know, she was so overbearing and she was always so anxious and like, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And like, but I know that she had a whole life, you know, like, and she had sort of this otherness and that came to me like I... I got that musical thing, whatever that was. And I I had that connection with her. And I wanted to, I felt like we both won, you know, a little mm. bit in that moment. It's like... Yeah, it feels like a completion. Like, we did it. Like... You know, like, and I could share that with her. And, um, yeah, it was kind of like an amazing, amazing moment. Me and my grandma. What was her name? Rose. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the final question. Three words oh, to right. describe your practice. <sighs> You'd think I'd be thinking about it the whole time and had something really... Yeah, you told us. And <laughs> my goodness. Trust, joy, and danger. Wow. Now you're in trouble. <laughs> How come I'm in trouble? You're the one in danger. <laughs> Watermelon. My favorite food. Inspiration. My favorite feeling. And 1968. My favorite year. Well, Brenda, Thomas, <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure getting a chance to sit down Thomas, double pleasure after all these years to do this again. Super Thank happy you. to be here. Be, yeah. Except that I'm here. You're right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Super happy you drove a zillion hours to come here and talk to us. My pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. And to Melissa for keeping everything happening. Yeah, what a great conversation. This was awesome. Yeah, super fun. This was episode 84. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 84. And I'll leave you with a final quote from Albert Einstein. Smoke like a chimney, work like a horse, eat without thinking, go for a walk only in really pleasant company. Thanks for listening.